Great, thank you. <coughs> Excellent. Wow. So, uh, just so you don't miss it, uh, I think, you know, first week, was it, of this year, we had Gina come and give a testimony about a miracle of healing that God's done. And now the last couple of weeks, we've had God bringing a word of knowledge, healing someone's ear, God bringing a word of knowledge, healing someone's arthritis. I just don't want you to miss that. Because we're English, most of us Christians. And if someone dropped down dead and was raised by the following morning, we'd probably forget it. Sometimes, you know, that's sometimes what I'm like. And I just want to make sure we don't miss that that's what God has done. I think he wants to do more. I think he wants us to be bold. I think he wants us to take those things and say, God, wow, that's amazing. Thank you. Can we please have some more? So I just don't want us to miss that moment. God spoke to us this morning through his words, through a little girl. I thought it was amazing, don't you? I thought that was amazing. I think God's doing something. God is at work amongst us doing some stuff. I don't know about you, but that's what I live for, God doing stuff. I know what I can do. It's all right. It's not worth much. <laughs> Five out of ten. Five out of a hundred. But God, he can do the hundred out of a hundred. Amen? That's what God can do. So when stuff like that happens, really, it stirs my heart, stirs my faith. Wow, God, if you did that the other week when we had those words of knowledge and healed two people, what could you do this week? What could you do this month? Who might you bring amongst us with what terrible, horrible thing going on in their life and you can heal them in a moment? It's just a possibility, isn't it? Because when God's about, everything's possible. Everything's possible. When God's about, everything's possible. That's not my preach. That's just me splurting off. I felt like it was a godly splurt, though. So I hope you'll forgive me. We are going to carry on looking uh, at our table. And uh, I haven't got it in your notes this week, but I think everyone's probably got the picture uh, by now of the cages and the table and the bowls. Uh, so just keep that in your mind. We're looking at the four legs of the table, which were prayer, dedication, commitment, and obedience. And I get to look at commitment this week, obedience next week. So we're going to look at it under three real headings this morning. We're going to look at the reason for commitment, the cost of commitment, and the tension in commitment. That's what we are going to look at. Let me give you quickly some context. We're going to look at a passage from Nehemiah. But unless you understand the situation to which Nehemiah is talking about, you won't understand what's going on. So Nehemiah is a man of God, but he's living in exile uh, in Babylon because the people of God uh, got taken captive by the Babylonians around 444, uh, about around 550, 60 BC, something like that. And uh, the Babylonians had come and they had sacked the people of God's key city, Jerusalem, their capital, the center of worship, the center of the nation of the people of God was the city of Jerusalem. And the Babylonians had come and destroyed it, basically knocked the walls down, taken most of the people of God away into Babylon to serve them, but had left a remnant in Jerusalem to basically caretake the place 
uh, to look over the pile of rubble. And of course, in those days, when the Babylonians swept through somewhere, they conquered the people, they took their arms, they took their goods, they scattered some of the people here, some of the people there. And so that's the situation that we've got in this part of the world at this time. And uh, in and around Jerusalem, there was obviously the kind of remnant of the people of God who were still there, but there were other nations that had been captured and they were trying to keep their religion and their national identity, even though they were all being ruled overall by the Babylonians. And in Nehemiah 1 to 3, news comes to Nehemiah from Jerusalem that the walls and the gates of the city are broken down. They are in ruin. And God's people, his people, Nehemiah's people, are in great trouble and distress. In fact, the trouble and distress that the people are in are shown by the fact that the walls and the gates of the city are in ruin, are in a pile of rubble. And fairly recently, they tried to rebuild the walls, but the king of Babylon had stopped it. You can read about that in Nehemiah. And when Nehemiah, in Ezra, I mean. And when Nehemiah gets this news, he sits down and he weeps and he cries and he mourns and he fasts before God. And he, he says to God, basically, God, will you, forgive, will you forgive us as a people, your people, for our sin? That, that, that meant that what you did was, God, you handed us over to the Babylonians. It was our sin. It's the fact that we rebelled against you, disobeyed you, and you warned us time and time again to turn back to you, but we didn't. And eventually, in your love, you disciplined us by allowing the Babylonians to come in and take over the city. That's what kind of Nehemiah cries out to God. He confesses the people's sin. But then he reminds God. That God, but you said in your prophets that when, when people did that, when they turned their backs on you and you had to discipline them, when they turned to you, when they cried out to you, you would restore them, you would heal their land. And that's kind of what Nehemiah cries out to God. And Nehemiah kind of commits himself in this moment to doing all that he can and commits himself to getting the people of God to do all that they can to rebuild these walls and gates around Jerusalem. Yes, it was about civic pride and about protection, but the most importantly, it was, it was a sign, if you like, that God's people were turning back to him, that God's people wanted to restore their broken relationship with God as they physically rebuilt this wall, that they were going to commit themselves to him, they were going to trust him. They were going to rebuild their walk with him. They were going to be humble uh, before him. And so Nehemiah prays to the king of Babylon, well, will you let me go back to uh, my city, Jerusalem, and take a whole load of goods and stuff? Uh, so will you give me safe passage, all the resources that I need, king of Babylon, and let me go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the city? And the king of Babylon says yes. He said yes because God made him say yes. There's nothing in it for the king of Babylon. But God said, no, yeah, fine. Yes, he answered Nehemiah's prayer. King of Babylon says, uh, yes. Safe passage, all the stuff that Nehemiah needs. And so Nehemiah goes back and, uh, and he arrives in Jerusalem and he sees the state of the walls. They're, in a, they're all broken down. 
and he calls the people of God together, and he says to them in Nehemiah 2, 17, 18, you see the trouble we're in? Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. So if you like, he tells them, look, look, this is what's happened. Here's the story. This is what God's done. This is what he's, he's caused the king of Babylon to do. And I prayed and I fasted and God sent me back here with the stuff to rebuild these walls. And these walls, it's a disgrace because our relationship with God is in a disgraceful place. At the moment, come on, people of God, let's rebuild these walls. And the people of God look at him and say, yeah, let's rebuild. And they begin. But immediately, some opposition comes. Some from their own people. Some from the people that live in and around Jerusalem, who for their own uh, motives don't want this, uh, these walls to be re rebuilt. Don't want the people of God to work together to see it done. And so even though the Babylonian overlords are ruling and they've got a massive army that can come and do whatever they like, they're miles away. They're miles away. And on the ground, in and around Jerusalem, these other people groups and nations are powerful, and they still want influence and power, and these are real opponents. And in Nehemiah 3, we see the rebuilding is going well. The people of God are getting on with it. They're getting on together. The wall starts to rise. It starts to join up. Their commitment has meant that something visible has happened. These walls are rising from the ground, and the, uh, their opponents don't like this. And this is where we pick up the story in Nehemiah 4. I'm going to read it for you. It's in your notes. When Sambalat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews. And in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble, burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, What are they building? Even a fox climbing on it would break their wall of stones. Hear us, O God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in the land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. But when Sambalat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem, and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out, and there's so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Also, our enemies said, before they know it or see us, we'll be right there among them, and we'll kill them and put an end to the work. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times over, wherever you turn, they'll attack us. Wherever you turn, they'll attack us. 
Wherever you turn, they'll attack us. Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posted them by families with their swords and spears and bows. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your families, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to our own work. From that day on, half of my men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows and armor. The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. And each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. But the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. Then I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is extensive and spread out, and we are widely separated from each other along the wall. Whenever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. So we continued the work with half the men holding spears from the first light of dawn till the stars came out. At that time, I also said to the people, have every man and his helper stay inside Jerusalem at night so they can serve as guards by night and workers as day. Neither I nor my brothers nor my men nor the guards with me took off our clothes. Each had his weapon even when he went for water. Father, we just ask that you would teach us and instruct us through your word this morning in Jesus' name. Okay, let's have a look at this. The reason for commitment. So what is commitment? Well, I think one definition could be a decision to do something with all your heart. We see that here. Verse 6, so we rebuilt the wall till it all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. Kevin spoke last week about dedication, which is at root how you do something that you are committed to. But it's vitally important that before you are dedicated to something, that you have committed to it. The two are different, okay? Commitment is what you decide to do. Dedication is really how you decide to do it. See, people who are dedicated but not committed can be very passionate, very excited, very much. <laughs> but if trouble comes, or if the results are not what they hope for, or if they aren't getting the recognition that they feel they deserve, or if it starts to get a bit too difficult, they will probably stop. And the issue may be that they were never really truly committed in the first place. Before dedication, which is about doing what you're going to do with passion, we have to be committed to it. We have to have made a decision that we are going to put our hearts and our hands to work to see this thing done. And that's what the people of God did right here in this moment. They'd made a decision to rebuild the wall. They'd made a moment of commitment. When Nehemiah said to them, come on, let's rebuild the wall. And they said, yes, let's re we commit ourselves, rebuild the wall. Right there is commitment. So the question then is, why, why are they so committed? It wasn't because they enjoyed building walls and gates. It wasn't that. And it wasn't even out of self-interest or protection from their enemies. 
Because even though they could have built the wall around them, and that would have kept the Adamites and the Ashdods and the, all those other people that we read about, Sambalat, maybe that would have kept them out. If the Babylonians would have sent even a tenth of their army down, Jerusalem would have been sacked again. Do you understand? It, it, it might have, rebuilding the walls might have saved them from Sambalat and his mates, but it wasn't going to stop them from the Babylonians. So it wasn't because of that. They did it because of God. Because they suddenly realized once again that they were the people of God. That he loved them. That they were his people. That this was a terrible witness. That other nations who don't know the real God would look on and see the people of God's capital city, the center of their worship, lying in ruins. And people would look on and say, well, I'm not going to follow their God because look at the state of their city. Look at what's happened to them. I think they committed again because they realized that they were responsible for the situation because they had disobeyed God. They hadn't cherished their relationship with him. Time and time again, God said to them, turn back, turn back. You're walking away from me. You're disobeying me. I'm here to... I'm, Stop it, stop it, stop it. If you don't stop it, I will send another nation. They will take you captive. They will, they will. Honestly, they will. They will, they will, they will. And basically, the people of God stuck two fingers up to him. You can read it in the Old Testament. That's really what they did. Disobeyed him time and time again. Till eventually, God said, okay, it's going to happen. So they understood the reason why the walls of Jerusalem were broken down. The reason why their relationship with God was a pile of rubble was because of them. They had been disobedient. They hadn't listened to God. They hadn't cherished their relationship with him. And so I think they see this. And so they commit because they realize again, this is about God. This is about God's kingdom. It isn't about an earthly city or kingdom. All the other people groups around them wanted a big, strong, secure capital city because their hope was in earthly power and strength. And that's symbolized by how impressive and strong your capital city is. It's why England spent a fortune building London. And, and, and France, the leaders of France did Paris, the kings. They wanted a capital city that when they invited other ruling dignitaries over, they would walk through and go, wow, what an impressive, amazing city. You must be a great and powerful nation. And all the other nations around the people of God, around Jerusalem, would have wanted strong walls, gates, big army, because they were looking for strength. They were looking for security. But the people of God realized, no, no, we want to build these walls. We want Jerusalem to be restored, because actually, we represent a different nation. We represent a different kingdom. We represent a different king. And his kingdom is going to last forever. His kingdom is going to survive when all the other kingdoms of the world have been swept away. Do you know, I mean, if you put yourself in the shoes of the people of God at this time, it looked like they were down and out and the Babylonians were going to rule forever. Where is the Babylonian empire now? Where is the Roman empire now? Where is the British empire now? They're all gone. 
Because these are kingdoms built by man to serve man, and God will knock them down one by one. Because there's only one kingdom that God is going to allow to stand, and it's his kingdom. And they get that. They understand that's who they are. And so they commit. They commit because they understand this is about God. They're committing to rebuilding this wall because it's about rebuilding their relationship with him. They're going to fit these stones together, stone by stone, not because they are wall builders, but because they are kingdom builders. And, you know, when we think about the leg of commitment in the picture, being committed to Jesus and being committed to his church, we must understand everything that we do in, in the context of the bigger picture that we are building the kingdom of God. That is what we are doing. We are building the kingdom of God. We are not trying to build this church so it looks anything special to us or anybody else in our day. We are simply playing our part in the kingdom of God that started long before us and will finish long after us. But what we do now is what is building the kingdom of God. Our commitment, our serving, our giving, our acts of obedience, every prayer, everything we do to care for one another, every time this church does something to build itself, to share the gospel, to serve the community, to reach the nations, we are building the kingdom of God. It's all about him. It's all about his kingdom. It's not about us. It's never been about us. Please, God, let it never be about us. It's not for our comfort. It's not for our reward. It's not for our prestige. It's not our opinions that matter. It's for him and it's for his glory. That's how it is and that's how it's always been. God was the reason for their commitment and God needs to be the reason for our commitment. He called them to be committed. He calls us to be committed to do the things that he wants to do to advance his kingdom for him, empowered by him, so he gets all the glory. That's why Christianity is not for wimps. It's not for the half-hearted. It's actually for the bold and courageous because, trust me, it takes courage when you look at yourself with the sober assessment and realize you're not God, you're not Superman, you're not Wonder Woman, and yet you commit to living your life for his glory. That takes courage. That takes boldness. I think it's why Peter talks about the church being this wall of living stones, being built together. He says in, in 1 Peter, as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also are like living stones. You're being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus. That's who we are. That's who we, we, we are living stones that are being built together, and together we form a spiritual house that acts as priests to God. That's who we are. So I suppose my question, how committed are you? How committed are you? How are you building? How are you allowing God to shape you to fit the part of the wall that he wants you to fit into? How do you help shape other parts of the wall, other brothers and sisters in this church? Have you made a moment of commitment to him, to this church? to his cause. I think that we see the people of God did here. They understood the reason for it. 
But then what kicks straight in is the cost of commitment. You see, in chapter 3, when they first start, the cost of commitment doesn't seem too much. They seem to be building the wall, bit of effort, bit of lifting, but not too much. But then the opposition comes. And it's only when the opposition comes that we see the cost. If you go through this chapter, they face ridicule in verse 2. They're despised in verse 4. They're in physical danger, verse 8. They're exhausted and discouraged, verse 10. They're threatened from outsiders, in verse 11. They're discouraged and disheartened from their own people, verse 12. They have to walk around armed for battle, verse 13. They're afraid, verse 14. Their families, sons, daughters, wives, homes are in danger, verse 14. They work from sunrise to sunset, verse 21. They work all day and guard all night, verse 22. They keep their weapons and clothes on 24-7 because they always have to be ready to fight, verse 23. Come be a Christian. What a cost. Can you imagine trying to get people to sign up and commit for anything if you told them that list? Come be ridiculed, in danger, exhausted, threatened, discouraged. Can you imagine it? Why on earth would you keep going through all that? Well, actually, the reason why they kept going through all that was because of what we just looked at, because they committed. They had committed already because this was about God and his kingdom. And having made a commitment, having decided to put their heart into it, they face every opposition and they pay the cost and they overcome everyone. Yeah, they doubted and they're scared sometimes and they're questioning sometimes. But if you're committed... The only way not to break that commitment is to pay the cost. Are you with me? If you've committed to something, the only way not to break that commitment is to pay the cost, is to somehow find a way to overcome and keep going. Otherwise, you end up breaking the commitment. It's why I think dedicated people stop somewhere down that list, but committed people don't. Because committed people say, I'm going to pay the cost whatever, because I've made a commitment. The costs that come up, the ones that I envisaged and the ones that I didn't, I am going to pay. When I was thinking about this, I, what, what, I was thinking about what's the greatest display of commitment ever. I, I do think it is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. I do think that in those, that time, just before the cross, he's given a glimpse, he's given a foretaste of the cost that he's going to have to pay to save people like you and me. It's like he's given a sip of the drink of the most disgusting liquid in the world ever, a sip of it, and then he's told, and there's a vat of it over there, that you're going to go and have to drink. He's given a glimpse of what the righteous anger of God falling on him is going to feel like. It's the ultimate facing up to the cost of commitment, I think. He knew the cost and he knew the outcome. And Jesus, for the glory of God, and in order to save people like you and me, drunk it and then went off to drink the rest. That's what I think happened in the Garden of Gethsemane. And, you know, we'll face these things, the things on this list, if we commit to Jesus, we commit to his church, we commit to his kingdom. But God wants us to face them individually and corporately and to together overcome them. He wants us to overcome them. Because that's what Jesus did. That's how we follow Jesus. That's how we become more like Jesus. This is how we have testimonies like Jesus. We face these things. We ask God for the strength to overcome them. 
and we continue and we overcome them. That's what Jesus did. And therefore, if we are going to become more like Jesus, then that is exactly what we are going to have to do. When Peter tried to dissuade Jesus from going to the cross, Jesus said to him, get behind me, Satan. He wasn't really calling Satan the devil, but he was hearing the devil's voice in Peter's words, urging him to reconsider, count the cost again. Are you sure it's really worth it? Change your mind. But Jesus had committed. He counted the cost. It's going to carry on. For us to build this local church will cost us. Local churches only get built by Christians who pay the cost. That's how it works. That's how, that's how the church has gotten built. That's how it will be built. That's how it will be built in the future. Christians end up paying a cost. It will cost us in time. It will cost us in money. It will cost us in prayers. It will cost us sometimes in sweat, sometimes in tears, sometimes in heartache. Sometimes there will be laughter and joy and love and encouragement and support and feasting and all those other great things. But you know what? They don't come in a vacuum. They come with the other side of it as well. And you know, there's actually nothing wrong with feeling some of these things. Sometimes those things on the list, discouragement, being afraid, disheartened, feeling like you're under attack, under a pressure. I felt all those things in the last 20 odd years that I've been part of this church. It's not abnormal. The people of God felt them. I don't blame them for feeling those things. It's not abnormal. It's not wrong. What's wrong is giving up. What's wrong is not being prepared to pay the cost. What's wrong would not be going to the mighty one to get strength to overcome the things that are obstacles to us. Do you understand? That's what's wrong. Feeling these things isn't a sin, but refusing to face them in God's strength is. That's why when they started to rebuild the wall, it wasn't just all plain sailing. God allowed the wall to be knocked down. God also allowed trials and tests to come in because he wanted his people not just to go, oh, that's nice. I just rebuild the wall. How lovely. Oh, it's all fantastic. He needed them to actually face up to the fact, no, no, we're going to have to rely on God. We're going to have to trust in God. We're going to have to get strength from him to overcome. Either that or we just leave the walls in a pile of rubble. There is a cost to pay. But actually, within that cost, it forces us to look to God and to say, actually, your will, not my will. Your strength, not my strength. Your plan, not my plan. And kind of that's what we see going on here. Crucial that we get strength to overcome the obstacles. So the third thing I want to look at that I see popping out in this passage, I've called it the tension in commitment. And I, I do think those things on the list that we shared are difficult and hard things. But I actually wonder whether this thing of tension, the tension in commitment, is actually for many people maybe the hardest. It's the tension primarily caused by being in and committed to the kingdom of God while still living very much in the kingdom of this world. It's the tension... It's the tension of the now and the not yet. That one day all things will be made right, but they're not made right yet. Are you with me? It's the tension. 
Let me just give you three examples where maybe this pokes its head out. Verse 9, but we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Now, the people of God could have been thinking this. So exactly who's going to meet this threat? Is it going to be the guard or is it going to be God? Because I pray to an almighty God for his protection, but then we've posted a guard, Nehemiah. Couldn't God protect us? Is the guard like an insurance policy in case God's sleeping the moment they turn up? Verse 14, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your families, your sons, your daughters, your wives, your homes. Don't be afraid. God is great. God is awesome. And you expect the next line to be something like, and he will come with his angels and he will smite down all your enemies. But it doesn't say that. It says, the Lord is great and awesome. Remember God and fight. Fight for your very lives. Fight for your kids' lives. Hmm. Could be a point of tension here. If God is so great and awesome, shouldn't he fight? We are the people of God. Shouldn't he fight for me? And shouldn't he fight for my children? He's much better equipped at it than me. Shouldn't he fight if he's so great and awesome? Verse 19, wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. Brilliant. Whenever the enemies attack, blow the trumpet. We'll all turn up and we'll be the greatest uh, band of supporters you've ever had. Ray, go on, God. Ray, go on. Go on, God, Ray. That's not the sense of it, though, is it? They're going to turn up and get your, get your sword out. You're going to fight. Well, hang on a second. I thought God was going to fight for us. Feels like I'm fighting right now. That's definitely a sword in his hand. He's trying to kill me. Doesn't feel like God's fighting for us. I think there are just three examples of, in a sense, this thing, this tension in commitment. Because we've got an all-powerful God who chooses to fight for us by enabling us to fight for ourselves, for him, and for his kingdom. We have an, an almighty God who chooses to fight for us by enabling us to fight for him and to fight for his kingdom. A God that has decided that his kingdom will advance as we pray and act. So we have to pray believing that everything depends on him, which it does, and then in many ways act as if everything depends on us, whilst at the same time remembering that actually everything does really believe on, depend on him. Maybe I'll say that again. We have to pray believing that everything depends on God, because it does. But then somehow we have to act and fight as if everything depends on us, whilst at the same time remembering, no, no, actually everything does depend on him. That's the kind of thing we need to do, and I think that causes tension. We feel the, the pressure of both those truths being in operation. And I think some Christians cope with the pressure by getting completely focused on what we have to do. They get all legalistic, must do this, must do this, must do this, must do, must do, must do. They somehow forget that in the story, God's people prayed before they acted. They somehow forget that they remembered the Lord as they went to fight with all their hearts. And some other Christians go the other way. They just get sloppy or disciplined. Doesn't matter what I do, whether I pray, whether I don't, whether I act, whether I don't. They just kind of let it all go. And actually, they end up losing both. They generally don't fight. They generally don't act. Because we've got to keep both of them, because they're both true. We've got to keep both of them in our 
hearts and in our heads. And that's what I mean by living with the tension in commitment. Let me earth this for you. There's a little girl in this church called Arwen Collins, and she's very seriously ill. She has been for a number of years. We face two choices. One is that we can decide, can't face the pressure anymore. I can't face the pressure of an all-knowing God and a sick little girl. I can't face the pressure of it. Therefore, I'm going to decide God doesn't heal or God doesn't want to heal, or I'm just not going to engage in prayer because it's too painful. Now, that does, this, that does one thing. Like bursting a balloon, it lets the pressure go. We can do that. That's a choice that we have. Or the second is that we can keep believing that God can heal her, and therefore, all the time he can, we will keep on praying. But if we go down that route, we are accepting the fact that we are going to have to live with the pressure. We're accepting the fact that we are going to live with the tension. Because it's the tension. It's the tension of an all-knowing, all-powerful God who hears our prayers. But we're not seeing it in every situation and circumstance that actually causes us to cry out to him. It's, It's that which causes us to cry out to God that unless he does something, then nothing that we do individually or as a church is going to do anything in the kingdom of God. It's that tension which means that Actually, having prayed our hearts out, we will, then, we will then act, if you like, put our hands to work with all our hearts. And yet, at the same time, we can sleep easy because we know that actually it's God who's going to do it. It's really that we've got to keep the both. The reason why Christians go passive, I think, is sometimes they can't bear the tension. And so they let the pressure out of the balloon by basically the saying, God can't, God won't, or he's not going to involve me. It's like an, it's, I think it's like when you fire an arrow. When you fire an arrow, you get a bow, you get a piece of wood, and you put a piece of string between the, the, the wood. And as you put the arrow in and you pull the string, the bow bends. It bends as you pull it back, and you create a greater tension. And you've got to hold that tension. If you're going to fire an arrow, you've got to hold that tension. You can't release it from the top or the bottom. If you do that, if you let the string out at the top of the bottom, what will happen to the arrow? <laughs> you, that's what will happen. Flop. If you're going to hit the target and move the thing forward, you've got to pull it back. You've got to live with the tension. You've got to take it in your arms. You've got to wait till the right moment. Then you've got to let go and see the arrow fire. I believe that the church of God advances as Christians. Hold on to the tension of the now and the not yet. A God who can, but doesn't always do it at our time, but will refuse not to let go, not to let go, not to let go, until God heals. Until God heals. So we have to learn to live and accept that there is a tension in that. As a church and individuals, if we want to move forward in his purposes, we've got to embrace it, that we are committed to an all-powerful God who has chosen to work through weak people like you and me. He's chosen to do things in his timing, not our timing. To do things his way, not our way. Who's told us the reason for commitment. And he's told us the cost. He's even given us an example to follow in his son. 
But he said, I will give you strength and peace in the tension if you will rely on me as Jesus relied on me. My time is up. I'm going to stop. We are going to have communion. Neil and Nomi are going to lead us. Just before they come up, I just want to encourage you. If you are facing difficulties or a struggle right now, know this. God does not want you to go flop like that arrow. But God wants you to hold the tension and to find strength in him. So as we take communion now, if that's you, please do ask God that he would strengthen you by his Holy Spirit. Amen. Great, thanks.